I'm your host, Rena Friedman-Watts, and this is the Better Call Daddy Show. Hey, this is Big Daddy, Wayne Friedman. That's my grandpa. Grandpa, you ready for more daddy drama? My dad is my number one hero and number one fan. And I'm a pretty cool dude. All right, season four, baby, here we go. More stories you're not going to believe. And maybe you will after you listen. Five stars. Five and a half stars, two thumbs up. You are a pretty cool dude. Love you, mommy. Don't stand on the table and damn the public. You'll get some words of wisdom to live by. Here we go again. Better call daddy. You know what your problem is? You like me. Yeah, I do. Each week, I interview a guest, share the stories with my dad, and then he weighs in at the end of every episode with his wisdom and wit. Thanks, Grandpa. Everyone from influential players to inspirational fathers and, of course, controversial people. Grandpa, my mom is calling. Creating that legacy one call at a time. And welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show. Stay tuned. Where's the music? Better call daddy cause he knows your best. Better call daddy cause he's bringing the test. He sees possibilities. Better call daddy, he'll be by your side. Better call daddy, you're the apple of his eye. He sees Today's guest is the son of two Holocaust survivors. His legacy is keeping his parents' story alive. His loyalty is admirable, and my dad said the Jewish people need to follow in his footsteps. Michael Ruskin, welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show. Oh, you look so great. You look so great. What is that, like a headband you got on? It's a headband. Very cool. I like women of fashion. (laughs) You live in where? I'm in Texas, in Houston. That's where I still live. Really? I live in the woodlands. Okay, yeah. I worked at Compact Computer back in the 90s. And it was back in the days where I was a country two-step dancer. Well, that's a whole nother story. I'm the only Jewish guy with a Stetson hat and cowboy boots. Oh my God, yes. I really should write my own book. I mean, it's an amazing journey I have. I've been in places that nobody Jewish has ever went to. I mean, I was in the sticks of like Tomball, Texas. I was around the country dancing from one city to the other. I mean, this is all country. This is not ballroom. This is country dancing, like cha-cha, waltz, two-step. I was doing all that, and I also taught. I had a dance studio. What? Yeah, Minneapolis. I am telling you, I should be writing a book. I think you could do it. No, there's no doubt about it. The Ventures of a Jewish Guy Who's a Cowboy. You know what's so funny about that? I met my husband on J-Date and he was wearing a hat. I thought it was a cowboy hat. Turned out it was a fedora. (laughs) I don't know what it is. There are a lot of women that like cowboy hats. Yeah, so so I'm a Jew from the South. I was born in Kentucky, so I was attracted to that. And turns out he was born in Memphis and raised in Houston. So he is a Jew from the South. And I danced in both Lexington and I danced in Memphis. Really? I mean, it's amazing. I mean, it is amazing the places I've been to. I'm from Brooklyn, New York. I should be doing like Hebrew dancing. I don't know. But anyway, so I ended up getting into country music. I have no idea how I got it. I just love two-step. And so I got into country music and I got into a lot of swing dancing. So I did a lot of swing and it kind of combines because country dancing also has swing dancing. 
So I did both. And then I did competitions and I had my studio and I had a whole other life before this book. My parents plots. I mean, they did not like me. Like I was going out with all these evangelicals. You know, they're like, you know, and I didn't have a problem, but my circle of friends were country people. How did that happen? Past life. Well, you know that the Hasidics believe in a past life. No doubt, when I would put on my garb for my country dancing, I looked in the mirror, I would say, I've worn this stuff before, and it must have been one of my past lives. There's no reason why I shouldn't have gone to yeshiva. I should have been a rabbi. And I ended up taking a different path against my parents' wishes. And remember, I'm the grandson of a rabbi. Right. It's in your blood. Yeah, it's in my blood. And so, you know, I still speak, well, some Yiddish, but I mean, you know, they, they spoke Yiddish to me in the house all the time. And, you know, I went to temple and I celebrated the holidays, but I went to college in Ohio at Kent State. And then I got into uh, traveling because of my business in human resources. So I traveled a lot and I danced in every place. I was a contractor. So I would go from one city to the other to work. And anytime I got to a new city, I would find out where the place was to dance country. And I would go there. I'd meet a thousand women. And that's how I went through the first 25 years after I graduated from college. It sounds like a blast. It, It was fun. But, you know, the fact is I never had children and, you know, I really never settled down. And I paid a dear price. I mean, if I had to do it over, I would have had a family. And I don't have family. Like when I see people who have children, I just love kids. You know, I'm already in my 70s. It's too late. But anyway, it, it is what it is. And I learned a lot and I still am. And this book has been another chapter in my life, literally. And of course, I'm trying to keep my parents' legacy alive after all they've sacrificed for me. I'm trying to give back to them because we never really said a lot of love and affection. My parents were shut down emotionally. So because of the war, they didn't really express themselves. My mother rarely kissed me. They lived in Florida. I would uh, hug my father and give him a kiss on the cheek, whatever European thing to do. But my mother and I were like, she would smother me. That was her way of loving me. It doesn't work like that. So the more she smothered me, the more I pushed away. And maybe that's one of the reasons why I went into a different path, because she was like always getting on me about find a Jewish girl to settle down with, have a family. And the more she pushed, the more I said, I don't want to get married. And the women I dated, most of them weren't Jewish. So it's been tough. But now with the book, I mean, it's opened up. I can't tell you how it's changed my life. I mean, the spiritual things that's happened to me, it's been absolutely incredible. Ooh, I want to hear about that. Tell me about the spiritual things that have happened. Well, first of all, I met a man from South Africa. He turned out to be my second cousin. I know I told you this. I had an ebook back in the early 2014, 13, and I had it online for just a little while, and then I took it off. I didn't get much of a response. Anyway, so this ebook went around the world. There was a Jewish website that spoke about various Holocaust experiences and that sort of thing. Well, my ebook was on it. I didn't even know. All of a sudden, I get this email. My name is Evan Levin. And I leave her. And I said, I live in Johannesburg, South Africa. And he says to me, I think my grandfather, my father came from Kadan, Lithuania, which is a very small town. His grandfather came from the same town. And this guy was a Lithuanian. He did a lot of genealogy research on the Baltic countries. And he said, I did research. and I believe that you and I are cousins. I thought this guy was a nutcase. I didn't even know who this guy was. 
And so we spoke a while, and then a couple days later, because I didn't believe him, he sent me his aunt's address book from South Africa with my parents' address and phone number on there. He turned out his grandfather was my grandmother's brother. Whoa. So he turned out to be like my first cousin. And he came over and I had dinner with him last year for the first, I never even knew I had one. Anyway, with his research, I found that I had two cousins here in this country on my father's side, one in New Jersey, one in San Diego. And then the things that happened to me, like for instance, you know, I did a lot of my research and my typing late at night. I had a branch that fell from a tree that was about 100 feet in the air on the deck of my condo, and it landed right in a flower pot. I mean, it went right, it was a storm. It was a big storm, rainstorm. And I heard the noise outside. It was two o'clock in the morning. The next morning I wake up and I got a picture of this. There was a tree that looked like the tree of life that was in the flower pot and I couldn't get it out. I mean, absolutely unbelievable. And the things that's happened, the synchronicity, the people I've met, one of my friends who I knew since I was very young, she's from Brooklyn, from the Bronx. I didn't know this until last year. She was in the displacement camp and she was one of the students that my mother was teaching back in 1946. And I knew this woman since I was 14. Now she's 80 years old now and she's not well, but she told me only last year because she saw the book that she was a student that my mother was teaching with a whole bunch of other children. So that was an amazing thing. Then the other thing, when I was writing this book, Rena, I could feel my fingers running across the keyboard as if it had a mind of its own. I would hear things and feel things that my parents were filling me with words. I was coming up with words I never use. And I was just letting my fingers go across the keyboard. And then the next morning I would look down and I said, I cannot believe I wrote this. I say this to everybody I meet. This is not my book. This is their book. I only stand in their place to speak the words that they should have spoken when they were still alive. I can feel them all the time. When I'm making presentations on podcasts or in front of people, they're with me all the time. But there's a lot of different things that happen. The people that I met, people who were Holocaust survivors that I would actually speak with from Auschwitz. Listen to this. I met a gentleman three weeks ago. His mother was in the apartment that Anne Frank was in. He is the son of a woman who was in this apartment with her aunts, this guy's aunts, and her mom knew Anne Frank, so we wrote a book. It's called The Annex or something like that. I can't remember, The Lost Annex. He wrote a book about his experiences that his mother told him about. Incredible. Anne Frank. Wow. I recently reread that. And it's crazy to read that as an adult because I had read it as a child, but it hits different when you're a mom. It was unbelievable. And he ended up writing this book and one of his aunts, he told me, actually was responsible to a certain degree to snitch on Anne telling the authorities that she was upstairs in the annex of the apartment building. Like I'll send, I'll send you his book from Amazon. It's incredible. I can't remember. There's so many people I've met through the book and on Facebook. You know, I'm doing podcasts in Europe now. Then you know, I'm getting such accolades and so many people thanking me for the book and people crying and all. But because you know, the book is a spiritual book. I mean, I wrote this book because 
instead of focusing on the atrocities, I was focusing on the what I call the shining light of the Holocaust, two of them being my parents, because their love would not be denied. It was almost like my parents looking at the Hitler's face and telling him to go take a hike because they would not part. And considering the fact that I had a sister who died, my parents were almost four years in a Lithuanian ghetto where my sister died. They lost their families. They lost their daughter. And within three months after the loss of Rose, they were put into separate concentration camps. My father to Dachau, my mother to Stutthof, they didn't see each other for nearly nine months, not even knowing if the other one was still alive, but that's where the vow comes from. The vow comes from when they were on the trade platform, they made a vow that if either one were to live, they were to go back to find each other. And so it was their strength in the human spirit, their faith in God, which is, I tell people all the time, you've got to tap into that side of your spiritual side. That's where your power lies. And God has it right inside of you. All you've got to do is believe. Your belief is so important. And you can overcome any challenge, any hardship, just as my parents did. And if my parents were able to get through this and live productive lives here in this country, you could do the same thing regardless of what kind of circumstances coming up. That's what I mean. My, so it's a spiritual book, and I want to leave them with that because I want them to have something to take back with them. It's such a beautiful, powerful message. I love that. Yeah. So, yeah, that was the whole premise of the book. You know, it contrasts like the darkness versus the light, Adolf Hitler and the destruction and the evil he caused versus my parents who were, they exemplified the strength of the human spirit, their love, their courage, their faith. This is what kept them alive. The fact that they really believed that they had a future together. And that's what kept them alive. The guy who wrote Search for Meaning. Victor Frankl. Yeah. He talks about people giving up. And he said, within three days, they're normally dead. Wow. So that's what kept my folks alive. And because I really didn't realize all this when I was still young, I mean, they never spoke about it. And I never told them how proud I am and how much they sacrificed for me, how much I appreciate all they've done, that this is one of the ways I'm giving back. I am devoting the rest of my years to this book. I'm telling you, I'm spending seven days a week, about 12, 14 hours a day, mostly on marketing because it's not on Amazon or it's not on Faith, not on the Barnes & Noble. So I got to promote my book and that's a lot of work. Oh yeah, marketing is a piece that I think that many authors and podcasters don't fully understand until they do it. <laughs> that's right. They don't understand. If people would say, you think the writing is tough? Wait till you start marketing. That's what they would tell. A lot of people don't go through Amazon anymore because they're so, they rip you off a lot of the times. So they say, you wait till you start. I said, it can't be that hard. Trust me, it is tough. It is tough. And as much as my book is number six on Google right now around the world, it's still hard because I still have to keep myself in front of people. By the way, I end up autographing every book I send out, which I send out personally. I go to the post office every day. I autograph each book. And then people who respond on Facebook, I get back to each one of them and thanking them for getting my book. It makes a big difference when the author is getting back to their fans, telling them how much I appreciate them. Because it's their legacy. They're the ones that are keeping them alive. And that was my goal right from the beginning. I wanted this book to be international. I wanted to go global and exactly what's going on. Now, all I need is a movie, and that's even being tossed around. But I don't know what's going to come. Out in Los Angeles, a couple of producers were mulling it around, but they said, I have to sell a lot of books. Otherwise, they can't, because the, making a World War II movie is going to be extremely expensive. 
But if people would say, when is the movie coming out? So anyway, yeah. So this is what I'm devoting myself to. I love it. I have to say, on page 22 in your book, when you talked about the vow that your dad made to your mom's dad, I thought that that was part of the vow as well. Because Uh, your dad promised your mom's dad that he was committed. And I thought that that was interesting because I feel like your mom wanted her dad's permission. And, you know, she obviously cared what her dad thought. And her dad wanted to make sure that your dad had a job and that he was in it for the long haul. That's so old school. Yeah, that's what they were. And no one has ever pointed that out. You're the first. I didn't even think about it until you just brought it up. That was his vow to my grandfather. That you picked that. I thought that's so insightful. I mean, I can't believe you came up with that. But that is a vow. So they had three vows. They had the vow in 1939 when they got married, and the vow to my grandfather, and then the vow in the train station in 44. Yes. I mean, it's, believe me, people say you had to have made this up. I said no. I got the documents that I found on my father's night table. And all those documents I gave to the Holocaust Museum in their library. If you don't believe me, go call the library and ask for Michael Ruskin. All this information is in my book. It's in the back of the book. A lot of the testimony they gave to the lawyers that petitioned the German courts in 1964 to get reparations from the Germans, those lawyers and doctors had to present petition. And that those drafts are in the back of my book. So everything I'm saying is right back in there. So then people shut up. And then there are people who don't believe the Holocaust ever happened. And what do you say to them? I said, why don't you go back and learn something? Well, you know, I say, you don't even know what you're talking about. Millions have died and you're telling me it never happened. I got documents, they got films on here, documentaries, uh, footage from what happened. You're telling me it never happened. These people are, they're anti-Semites. That's what they are. They're not very knowledgeable. They're low information people, but there's a lot of sheeple out there. They follow the pack. And these guys are trying to separate people because that's how they win. The same thing in Germany in 1935. The Nazis tried to separate people so they can conquer. And that's exactly what they tried to do. So these guys are, and you know, they're all following Hitler's bullcrap. You know, the deniers and the they put swastikas on the temples and the synagogues. It's just, it can happen. It can happen again. And I tell people this, you've got to be vigilant. You've got to push back. You do not take this kind of crap from anybody because it could happen again. And even now, the country and the world is so divided. I mean, it's right for something like this to happen. The Jews are always the scapegoat, always. Hitler thought that the Jews were the inferior race. They had a thing called eugenics, where they were trying to purify the race, and the Jews were at the bottom of the rung, get rid of all the people like the gypsies and the Catholics and the Jews and the kids who are have uh, challenges. And we have to make the world a pure place. And the Nazis thought the Aryan race was the master race, and they were going to take over the world, and everybody else was going to follow them. Well, it didn't happen that way, fortunately. But that's what they do. They try to separate people, and that's how they conquer. So I tell people, you got to always be vigilant. There's stuff going on every day. I mean, the anti-Semitism right now around the world is like almost at an all-time high. They just do not like, they got to blame someone. And so they look at the Jews as well. They own the banks, they own the media, they do this, they that, that, all this power. And they're threatened by them. 
And they don't like that because it makes them, the anti-Semites, feeling less than. And there's a lot of jealousy. And they're afraid that the power that they have positions of influence, that they're afraid that these are the people, the Jews you got to watch out for. And it's just the it's the, those people you got to watch out for. It's not substantiated by anything. Have you ever wanted to fit in and hide your Jewishness? No. Well, let me put this way. I didn't put take my chai out and put it in front of the public at a dance place in Houston, Texas. But I mean, then I don't do that anyway. But my relationship with God is very, very close. I pray. I journal every day. I thank him every day. He's giving me another day of life. And I really believe he's keeping me here because of this book. Because, you know, I got ancestors that go back to the programs in Russia back in the 1700s. They were all persecuted. And I've been told that my ancestors on the other side are still in shackles because of the persecution. I am the last surviving member of my immediate family. And if I don't break those shackles up there, they're never going to recover from the pain that they had gone through. So I am responsible. And maybe that's one of the reasons that mankind is still so wonderful that I haven't given up on that people should judge you by, not even judge you, but you should be the character you have. You were all children of God, the same God that made anybody made me. I mean, we don't have separate God. And I also believe there's one soul. I believe we're all connected to the same soul, except we have different aspects. And we're all expressions of God. Every time we open our mouth, we're expressing something about God. I don't really advertise my Jew. I mean, unless you hang around with a really close circle of Jewish friends. I have friends across the board, you know, Jewish friends, non-Jewish friends, unless you were the child of a Holocaust survivor. In my parents' case, they looked at Judaism the way I looked at it as a child, as oppressive. It was an oppressive religion. It was a religion to fear God and to obey the commandments. To me, it was not a happy religion, although the Sephardics and the Ashkenazi, they have kind of a different personality in some respects. You know, the Ashkenazi from Eastern Europe, they're heavy people, not physically, but I mean, they're serious. You know, my grandfather was a rabbi, comes from a rabbinic family. I had three uncles that were studying in the seminary. It was a different time. And so the way I related to Judaism, and although there's a lot I could say now, it is a beautiful religion, but to me, to be around my parents who suffered because they were Jews, it was heaven. And the fact that I didn't get married to, no, I didn't really get married. It was a flash in the pan type of thing, but it crushed my mother, crushed her because I didn't have the offspring. You know, my mother would say to me, Michael, and she would call me from Miami, Michael, did you find somebody? Are you going out with a Jewish girl? Every time I spoke to her, that's the first thing out of her mouth, even if I spoke to her the day before. I can relate to that because I wasn't married by 25 and then they started lining them up at all the Jewish simchas like, we got somebody for you. I'm like, I don't have a problem meeting someone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, I could do it myself, mom. I don't need your help. It was very heartbreaking because my mother said to me, the day you get married is the day that God can take me to heaven. Oh my because God. She, you know why she said that? She said that because she believed her role as a mother would never be fulfilled unless her child was married. That there was a woman there to take her place, to take... They're very traditional. And it broke my mother's heart. But then she ended up getting Alzheimer's 
And then, you know, she had it for 13 years. It was a long time. And then, you know, she had her own problems and then she kind of forgot. She thought I was her brother, but it was heartbreaking. Not to say I didn't want to get married. I just didn't meet anybody that I could say that would be my life mate, my best friend, my lover. I just couldn't connect with someone where I'm going to wake up every morning to the same face. Back then in my 20s and 30s, that's not what I wanted. I wanted to explore and be with different people and not be encumbered by a relationship and just be free. Well, that's exactly what God gave me. I'm unencumbered and I'm free. So, and now in my 70s, it's like, what now? I mean, it's like, it's tough. Because although I consider myself looking, my energy is very young, you know, but you know, the women I meet now are like grandchildren and all this other stuff. And, you know, I want to travel. I want to do things like, I don't want to spend Sunday afternoon hanging around with the grandchildren. You know, it's just not my bag. So, I mean, I want to meet a woman who's free. And most of the people I meet, we all have baggage. It's really serious issues. You know, they got abandonment problems. They have divorces that really made them bitter. It was really tough. If I didn't make that move by the time I was 40, I knew it would be hard. But I'd never realized I'd be in my 70s and still do it. This was really hard. So I spent a lot of time. This is the purpose why I'm here. It's the book. It's presentations on podcasts. It's getting my parents' legacy in front of people. So when it's my turn to leave, I'm going to say to them, I did the best I could to tell you how much I love you. Because this is all based on the love I have for my parents which I never really said, rarely said to my parents, and neither did they say it to me, because they were just shut down. To them, it was smothering. My mother would walk me to school. This is all the one I would talk about. I spoke Yiddish, by the way, all through into the second grade. So when I go to school as a kindergarten, first, second grade, I'd speak to them in Yiddish, and they didn't know what I was talking about. They thought I was from Mars. But I mean, she would stand in the schoolyard after school three o'clock, get out of work early, and then walk me home by the hand. And in the morning, she would walk me to school by the hand. And all my playmates were going with their other friends. And here I am with my mother, because she was so afraid of losing me. Then at three o'clock, she would come out of work early and wait till I came out of school and walk me home. Now, you could imagine five, six, seven years old, that kind of mindset on a child like that it's a feeling like it's a scary world out here and my mom is here to protect me. This is what she was filling my head with. At that age, it's very impressionable. So this is what happened. So as I got older, it was like, if I hadn't gone away to college, I don't know what would have happened because I was so attached to my mom because of the way she raised me. And that was one of the reasons why I had trouble settling down because to me, love was being smothered. You love me, you smothered me. My mom loved me and she smothered me. So you could understand the relationship a child has with his mom versus a grown-up having a relationship with a woman. The transition is not that great. So that was also, it scared me because I knew a woman starts to fall in love, then I'm saying, I'm going to be controlled. Interesting. Whoa. This is some of the- So were you attracted to controlling women? I was attracted to narcissistic women. Believe it or not, my mother was a narcissist. It was always her way, you know, and I was drawn to that. I prefer a softer person, someone who shows emotions. Now I do. Back then, it was like they were a challenge to win them over. What I did for my mother, I never won her over. Never. I could tell you stories where Passover, I would go take the dishes out of the china cabinet, 
I would put them and wash each. And these dishes came from Germany. They were so expensive. I don't know where they got them, but they brought them over from Munich. And I still have them in boxes. I still haven't given them up. And I would wash them. It took me like three, four hours. I did this because I said, when mom comes home from work, she's going to be so happy that I cleaned all the dishes for Passover. She walks into the house and she starts screaming at me because you could have broken the dishes. Why did you take them out? And so I spent five hours washing dishes, not even a thank you. Instead, I was being reprimanded for the fact that I cleaned the dishes. So it was like, oh, you can't win. I was trying to win her over, but the only way this worked is if I acquiesced to what she wanted. If I didn't do what she wanted, she would give me the cold shoulder and then I would feel guilty. So then I would become the good little Jewish boy that my mom wanted to get her to love me again. And even the way she loved me wasn't really love, it was control. But then when I realized I wasn't being true to myself, it caused a lot of confusion. Because if I wanted to be who I was, she got mad. But if I was the way she wanted to be, she'd be happy. And that's what I went into relationships with. How did you find yourself? Spiritually. I read, read a lot of books, uh, Jewish books. I'd studied Kabbalah for a while. I read a lot of spiritual books. And my answer is that loving yourself, there's not a greater love you have than the love for yourself. And you got to be who you are. And you got to be honest with people. And you want to treat people with respect. And these are the kinds of things I didn't really learn when I was younger. But now I realize that back then I turned out to be someone I wasn't to get them to love me only in the end to break up because I couldn't be myself. That is one of the reasons why it never happened. Now, I am me. I just say what I want. I do what I want because it's me. Like me or don't, I am not going to be someone I'm not. So that's what I'm doing. Back then, it was totally different, but it came totally from working on myself. I was in therapy for a very short time. I should have been there longer, but I wasn't. It was because of my mother. I had this guilt complex because I felt like I had a conflict with my mother as far as emotional connection. And I felt guilty that I couldn't love her the way I think most children love their parents. And this is when I was already in my 20s. But a lot of this is just inter-reflecting, being introspective, and you've got to reprogram your way of thinking. And it took me 15 years to learn what I'm telling you. It took me a long, long time. And I realized how the past had such a predictive quality to what was going to happen as I got older. And that's what happened. But the fact that I do believe in reincarnation, same the way the Hasidics do, and I do believe in astrology, the same that Hasidics do, that we all come to learn lessons. And I believe that our souls are here to learn. You got to grow. And so that's probably the path I chose. This is why I came back. I really believe I came back. No doubt about it. This book was one of the purposes why I came back. At this age, if write this book, it was definitely in the cards for me to write this book for them. But I came back to learn these lessons that I didn't learn in the past. And I picked my parents. I believe that too. I believe that too. Yeah. I tell my kids that. I think it's hard for them to accept that at this point. <laughs> well, I mean, because they're too young, probably, right? Now, I'll tell you a really cool story. My niece, who I'm not really that close to, she's the only relative I have, her son is a Muslim. 
because she was married to a Pakistani Muslim. This is the great grandchild of my grandfather. My brother moved to Key West. He opened up Ben and Jerry's in Key West, Florida back in the 90s. She met him there. They had married two kids. One of the children, Adam, the son, became a Muslim, and the daughter now went to Israel, and now she's a Fruma Jew who married a rabbi. So you got two kids, one's a Muslim, one dresses in black. You know, she's very conservative, and she teaches Hebrew school in Brooklyn, New York. Amazing. You know, God works, and it's incredible. Now they're like, one's an Arab and one's a Jew. Sounds like a- Make this stuff up. A good comedy routine. (laughs) Exactly. I would not make this up. It's just unbelievable. I so connect to the God. I mean, I feel him in me, you know, and I can't tell you, I say thank you so much for giving me another day. For at my age, right, I'm seeing people getting sick and all this other stuff, and I'm still playing tennis with 40-year-old kids out there. I mean, I'm very active. I play a lot of sports, and I, I take really good care of myself. I've been that way ever since I was very young. Since. I want to talk about a little bit about the papers that you found in 1993, because you did include them in your book. You talked about that a little bit, and I read them There were moments where my jaw just dropped, especially when your mother and father described your sister being taken away by a trained dog. Well, you read the book, right? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, she got knocked on the floor with the guy's uh, back of his rifle. My sister was literally, and you know, she was literally taken out of the arms of my mom. And my mom was trying to reach for her. And my three-year-old sister was trying to reach back, and the Germans went right out the door. And they found them inside, down in the spider hole under the floor. So it was a horror show. It was just horrible. And, the and there's that, a picture of your sister in the book. There's actually a picture you no, have. No, that picture, no. That oh, picture, that's not her? Her name is Lena Shatterly. She was from Kovnev Countess, the ghetto that my parents were in. She was born the same time in the same place and died in the same place as my sister. She was exactly the same age. That little girl in that book represents the 1,600 children who were taken away during the Kindernacht in 1944, March 27th and 28th, where the Germans came into the apartments and grabbed the children because they wanted to take them, dispose of them because they were encumbering the women from doing the work the Germans wanted them to do for the war machine. That's one of the reasons why they didn't want to have another generation of Jews coming onto the planet. But that was the main reason. So that child, when I found that on the Yad Vashem website, and I noticed the day she was born, she was from Countess, she was the same age, and she was killed during the Kindernacht in March of 44, They were part of the 1600 who were killed in the extermination building a couple miles away. They were all shot. So she represents those 16. It was one of the most tragic events, and people don't talk about it. I wrote this book because I knew there are things in there people never knew about, especially in the ghetto. They talk about the concentration camps. My book focused a lot on the ghetto, what was going on with the selection process, with the raids into the apartment buildings. They don't hear very much about that. I wrote about it, and I know it's true because it actually happened. Because the people that are caught up about the concentration camp, that's okay, but there was a whole other end. Thousands, thousands of Jews died at the hands of the collaborators who sided with the Germans. My family were not killed by the Nazis. My family were killed 
by the locals who knew where the Jews lived in the shtetls, and they would go in machetes and knives and guns and shoot the Jews because the Germans said, you go, you know where they live, go into the houses and get rid of them. And that's what they did. Now, Lithuanians and other countries thought, especially Lithuania, they thought they were going to get sovereignty in their country because Russia, they just come up with the history, Russia actually annexed Lithuania a year before the Germans arrived. And when Russia was in Lithuania, they were sending the local Lithuanians to Siberia and they were killing a lot of the locals because they were communists. They took away the businesses, the factories. And so the Germans arrived and then the locals said the collaborators are between the Jews and the Russians. And because they took so many local Lithuanians to die, we're now going to get back at them. So they went out when the Germans arrived and they slaughtered thousands, thousands of Jews throughout Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia. And people don't understand that. People think it was only the Nazis that killed. No, it wasn't only the Nazis. It was the collaborators that also did that. So a lot of the local Lithuanians did that. Horrible. Also, I had no idea like how long Dachau was in operation. 33. Nineteen thirty-three. Yeah, it's a long time. And then you, know, you read about the part of my father was taking the bodies off the electrical fences in the concentration camp. He was an electrician. I am telling you, when you think about in '64, when the attorneys were talking to my parents about what happened, they had to regurgitate all these memories that happened almost 15 years ago. They had to recount all this. So they can put it into the petition for them to have to go back because they repress so much to go back and talk about this. It must have been horrendous for them to even bring it up. That's why my mother told me one time that you had a sister. One time she said that to me. That was the only time. And I didn't press her on it because I didn't want to open up the wounds. But she said, you know, you had a sister at one time. Remember, she said that to me in the kitchen while she was making dinner one day. There's one thing that's not in the book that I found later on. In 1954, my father worked in a paint factory in New Jersey, and there was an, a human resources person that did a story on my parents. And in there, my father talks about his mission of going from one city to another looking for my mother after the war when they made the vow. And my father was stopping at these displacement camps all along the route, going back to Lithuania, looking for my mom. All this is in this magazine that I found years later, him describing what happened in the United Nations, giving him a pass to go from Austria, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, and getting up into Poland. He had a pass to go from one place to another with a special pass from the UN. All this is in that magazine I got. I didn't put it in the book. I should have, but it, you know, it was getting worse because I was putting the stuff from their documents, but I still have that magazine. That's so a miracle too. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, when I read that, and he does mention my sister in the magazine, my sister who died. But the, the mission part where he was traveling, and then you know how my parents finally ended up getting to, I don't want to go into it because I don't want people to not get the book, but the fact that you know this gentleman met my father on the sidewalk when he landed in Balistok, Poland, that's how my mother and my father found each other. And I remember one thing I'll tell you, and I said that in a book, my mother said this to me, she goes, when she had typhus and she was only hours away from death, she saw my dad leaning over the cot she was in, and she said, David, are we in heaven? She thought my father had come back as an angel to take her with him to go back to heaven. She thought she was dead, and my father was the angel to come back and take her. It's sweet, though. Yeah. 
I mean, it, it was amazing. And then, of course, you know, my father did all he could and he saved her life. And they had children. They had two more children after that. Brother was born in Germany. My mother met General Eisenhower. Yeah. And you have a picture of that. Yeah, which is really cool. I didn't know that until I went to the family album and I see this little picture. I said, that's General Eisenhower. And then my mother told me that she did make a presentation because she opened the school. She made a presentation to a whole bunch of dignitaries. And I'm doing my fourth printing now in that picture, which by the way, I think you'll find it on my Facebook page. Yeah, you will. The picture of my mother standing and all these dignitaries and soldiers around her with my father in the second row. She's standing there and she was being honored at this event. General Eisenhower then became the 34th president. He was there with a whole bunch of UN people and she was there with all these people. And there's a picture in the book, a picture in the Facebook page that shows her not with the general, but with all these soldiers. But as you say, there's a picture of General Eisenhower, my six-month-old brother in a baby carriage standing in front of the general. I thought that was just so unbelievable. She, he probably got that picture from a GI who took the photograph and gave it to my dad. And I looked at this, I said, who is this? So I took a magnifying glass and I'm looking, I said, this is Eisenhower. And that's who it was. Incredible. It truly is. It truly is. I mean, when the people read this book, they just cannot believe it. It's truly an incredible book. I mean, I love that you included the papers that started the journey. Yeah, that alone was incredible because when I went in there to clean his condo out when after he passed away, and I went into his night table and I found these documents, I'm telling you, I flipped. I was there at 11 o'clock at night looking through in German and English. I was reading all this information. I never knew this happened and the way it happened. And I was just frozen. I could not believe what I was reading. So when I took those documents, I showed my brother and he was kind of a stoic guy. He was not a really emotional person. He was kind of shut down. When he died, by the way, in 2008, that made me the last surviving member of my family. But when I showed him that, I took those with me. And then only years later, when he died, I realized if I don't tell this story, no one's going to know what happened to these people. They're just going to fade away in history. I had to make a point to make sure this book gets out there so people know who my parents were, the message they had, the strength of the human spirit that my mom would say, if it wasn't for their love and their faith in God, they would never have survived. So you have to have a feeling of there's hope in the future and that keeps you alive. My dad is going to love that message. One thing that I really admire about you is that your legacy is tied to your parents. Yeah. I think that that is so beautiful and so special. And not everyone does that. Some people want a completely separate legacy of their own. And I love because I feel like my own father, his legacy is tied to his parents as well. No, oh, that's wonderful. I knew since I never had children, and I say this to everybody, this book is the baby I never had. So what it is, this book will be on the bookshelves and the libraries all over the world. And my name will be on there. And that will be my legacy. Instead of having a child or children that my DNA will be in them, now my DNA will be in the book. That's what I'll be leaving with. And you know, you know, I'm not exactly a spring chicken anymore, so I don't have that many years. That's one of the reasons why I'm working this hard. Because I don't even know if I'll have tomorrow. Nobody does. You know, it's like Schindler's List when he was trying to save all these people. And then at the end, he goes, I could have saved more. Oh, I'm getting upset. I could have saved more because he was trying to get them to work so the Germans wouldn't take them. That's how I feel now with this book. Like, I didn't want to leave saying I could have done more. You know, this is what I'm doing. This is my life. This is the book. 
So yeah, it is my legacy, right. But I don't really mention that when I talk to people normally, because then it sounds kind of self-serving. This is their book. I'm only standing here to speak their words, but this is their book and it's their story. And I know if I didn't tell people, no one would know. And I tried to get them to get on a tape recorder, tape in, and then parents would refuse to get on. They had really broken, you know, they, had, they were Yiddish. You know, they spoke Yiddish. Their English was broken. My mother spoke six languages. I mean, she was very bright. That's one of the reasons why she was able to get into the displacement camp and teach all these children, because they were all kids who were orphans. Most of them were orphans. Their parents died. And these kids were not only from Germany, they were from other countries. And my mother spoke all these different languages. That's how she was able to communicate with all the kids. She was an amazing woman. My mother was like four foot 11, really tiny, but strong as an ox. I mean, she was tough. I mean, she dug anti-tank ditches while she was in the Stutthof concentration camp, and she cleaned the different offices that the Germans were staying. And then she went through the death march. You know what happened there? They almost died freezing cold going to the water where they were going to the Baltic to take a, a barge over to Germany. And a lot of them who did make it were shot in the ocean swimming to a barge. There were old people who were on the road for seven days walking in the snow. And the Germans said, get into the water and, and swim over to that barge. They never made it. They were shot by machine gun on the beach as they were going into the water. They couldn't even swim anyway. And my mother was only two miles away from being at that beach until the Russians came out of the side of the forest and shot all the German guards. And that's how my mother was liberated. They were that close away from the beach. If they would have made it to the beach, they would have been dead. And I didn't even know about this until I spoke to the Holocaust Museum. When they looked up my mother's name and my aunt's name, she said, oh, you were in the death march from the Sturthof concentration camp. And I didn't know this. So what did I do? I go back and I do all this research. And I realized that they were walking to their death. Because what the Germans wanted to do is get them on the barge at, because the Allies were closing in on Schutthof and the other concentration camps. The Germans kept moving the Jews to different camps away from the Allies so they would continue to work for them. So that's why they were doing this death marches to get them to get on the barge to travel to Germany and continue to work for the Germans to give the soldiers what they needed. And my father was the same way. He was on a death march from the Dachau concentration camp. And he went to southern Germany, but the Americans were able to liberate the death marchers without any real shooting going on. But, you know, the Dachau concentration camp, which was liberated by Eisenhower and a couple of generals, when that happened, my father was already walking to another concentration camp. He wasn't part of that. So when he ended up getting liberated, he was put in a hospital. And then from there, he did his uh, mission to find my mom. Remarkable. Truly, truly, truly remarkable, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. I would like to ask you one last question. What do you think in yourself that you got from your parents? I have very strong will, and I found the importance of love mostly because they didn't show it that much to me, like I would want it to. So it made me appreciate the importance of family, of relationships, and it made me a stronger person. You've got to understand that the DNA I have in me, it's not only my parents were persecuted, my ancestors are all getting persecuted. And a lot of my strength comes from their ability to be strong, even though they weren't emotional about it. But the fact that they were able to come here and land in Ellis Island and then raise two children and 
after all that happened, they gave me the strength to realize that they had the love and the courage and the faith. My faith is just as strong as theirs, except I'm more broad-based rather than, it's not just Judaism, I'm proud to be a Jew, but I believe that the human race is, we're all together in this, we're all together, we're all connected. And with my family going through what they went through, there was always a little bit of suspicion that they're Jews and you're a Christian and because of that you don't like me. And I really didn't adopt that attitude. And to some Jewish people, they think that, you know, you should be more into the whole Jewish faith and than I am. But I do believe that just because you're not Jewish doesn't mean you don't come from God. I will say the picture of the Statue of Liberty and the quotes that you chose, I felt were so strong. And I love that your mom called this the golden land. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And that trip over in the boat where they first see the skyline in New York when they're first landing in Ellis Island, it was truly incredible because, you know, this is they never dreamt that they'd be coming to the United States and then live the life. And my mother worked as a seamstress for $2 an hour when she first arrived, didn't speak any English. And my father worked as a laborer in a, in a paint factory in New Jersey. And they turned out, you know, they, they bought a four family house and they bought their own home and they put two kids through college and they gave my brother and I piano lessons for eight years. It's pretty cool stuff. And it led to you incorporating that into your dance moves. Good point. My father was a ballroom. He did a lot of dancing. And some of the pictures I have, or I think are in the book, he's dancing with my mom. But yeah, I have a lot of rhythm. I played a piano when I was five years old. I was going to do wet with my brother at the age of five. I couldn't even get up to the piano stool. Rita. I had to climb up to the stool. I remember I was in front of a couple hundred people at this Jewish community center ready to start playing. And I got onto the stool and then I forgot to bow. So I climbed off to the school stool and got into the middle of the stage and I bowed and the whole place just went crazy. They just started laughing. And then I went back and I started playing. That's so cute. There's a picture of it. I got it in my family album. But yeah, it was pretty cool stuff. I did the best I could with what I got, and I feel good about who I am. I really do. And I think that I know when I go that my parents will be proud. Although they told me when I was young, don't tell anyone we're refugees. When I was young, going out to play with my friends in the neighborhood, they wouldn't want anybody to know that they came from Europe. But it was hard not that all heavy accents. So you had to know they came from another country. They didn't want to be identified as refugees. So they didn't want people to know. And in a way, I was kind of embarrassed when I was young too, because of their accent. I was very young. These are like playmates of mine. They're all Americans. And then here I got my parents who were like heavy Europeans. So in a way, I didn't feel I, I belonged. But listen, at that age, it's all ego. It's all like being accepted to your classmates. But as I got older, I was very proud of my parents because of what they went through. But I never really told them as much as how much I love them and how much I appreciate the sacrifices they made for my brother. I would never have made it. I am telling you, as I'm standing here, I would never have made what they had gone through, the loss of their three-year-old, being in a concentration camp, not knowing that your spouse was still alive. And their love for each other was always a strong bond because of the fact that they were suffering together and they were suffering apart. And when they got back together again, they knew their bond would always be there because they went through similar pasts. And so they were always that they were married 54 years. It's truly incredible. You know, I mean, then passing it down to me, and I'm so glad I had this opportunity to not only talk to you, but to talk to a lot of people from all over Europe. I've been speaking to Ukraine and the BBC, and 
I speak to a lot of different, but I enjoy talking to you because you're so connected. I could tell you're connecting to the things I'm saying to you. Oh, well, I have to wrap it up here, but let people know how they can find your book. And I am so glad that you put this together because it is so needed in the world and it's a beautiful legacy. And I think that you really should write that next book because you're incredible at doing it. No, thank you. I'm writing people's memoirs. So let me just quickly tell you, I have another side business called LifetimeStories.net where I'm writing people's keepsakes, memoirs, family history books. I'm writing that with a staff of people that are working for me. You could also find it on my website. So I'm doing that as well as this book, and I'm probably going to work on another book soon too. The book cannot be ordered through Amazon or Barnes & Noble or any bookstore. I have an ebook. Kindle. They can get the regular paperback book by going onto my website, www.thevowalovestory.com. And there you will find tremendous photographs. I have photographs that kind of rotate every five seconds showing pictures. And there you can order the ebook. That's why I'm going into Europe because I don't have to pay the shipping. I just send it on computer. If people want to spend like $11 for an ebook, they'll get the ebook. If they want to get the paperback, a lot of them do because they want to have it in their library, they get the regular paperback book. So it's the vowalovestory.com. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks. Hey, listen, let's stay in touch. For sure. Thank you so much. Okay, take care. You've heard from my mom. Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. Obviously, I like this Michael Ruskin's philosophy and legacy story about his parents and about the Jewish people, really, is really all tied in. And as you know from our own family, I've told you stories about how the Russians attacked the Ukrainians when my father's side of the family lived in Ukraine and where you have the Fiddler on the Roof story in our own family and about my grandmother's side of the story on my mom's side where they threw them out of Spain, where they threw them out of Israel, where uh, there's a history of the Jewish people all through the generations where there's been atrocities and where they have had to sometimes hide from people that are really looking to kill us or to blame us for all of their troubles. I agree with Michael that scapegoat seems to find our name all throughout history. And yet again, what I loved also is that I've told you stories about how I have gotten premonitions, also being a relative of uh, Joseph, and how when I was just a little boy, I had premonitions of things that have happened in my life now years later. And are we here two or three times to keep fixing things uh, where we have failed and can't necessarily even accomplish certain things? that God wants us to do in one lifetime? Do we need two or three or four or five lifetimes? Is part of our story not just about, as you've heard from me before, is it not just about Wayne in this generation, but the continuum, that legacy that we preach on the Better Call Daddy show and about the Jewish people, how we have to continue to go from generation to generation teaching God's word. Remember, the Torah doesn't stand up for any man or any woman. And you know, when you go back to Adam and Eve's day, the only thing that Adam wasn't supposed to eat from was the tree of knowledge. And yet when it comes down to our existence, doesn't that mean more than anything? 
is what we learn and what we develop and what we can pass on to future generations. And God has given us the Torah to pass this on so that maybe further and future generations can do a better job in understanding and learning what God's wishes really are. Sad part of this story is that by the time Michael woke up, his parents obviously would have liked to see that he carried on the family name and the family and for him to get married and have Jewish children. And the irony is that I also know what it is to taste non-Jewish girls. And it wasn't until I came to Louisville and met your sweet mom. <laughs> uh, and let's face it, when I came to town, she had such a large family, uh, all the sisters and brothers and relatives and cousins and grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles with these family gatherings, it was astronomical to me and very attractive because I also, after getting my oats, uh, so, <laughs> uh, maybe that's the word for it. The fact is, is that I was in a new place working hard and trying to help my dad and my mom in a family business and wanting to also be able to really settle down and make my own family someday. And look, I went out with a girl that was a beautiful German girl telling me how wonderful Hitler was. Okay. So if you don't get the message from that scenario, what will wake you up? But uh, I think Michael's story, even though it sounds very unique, how many Jewish families have very similar stories? But the strength and the wisdom that through this experience of his parents is something that he's now trying to pass on and to tell the message of some of the atrocities. And it wasn't just the Germans. It was a lot of people jumping on the bandwagon. And isn't that what happened on October 7th, 2023, where you have a history of abuse to Jewish people and the atrocities that were done and southern Israel are as bad, if not worse, than any atrocities that's ever been done to the Jewish people, where we still have to be on guard for the most inhumane treatment of anyone. And this is a reminder of why the Jewish people, God wants us to bring light to the darkness of this world. And the only way that it's going to happen is if we're able to tell our story and have compassion for all peoples, especially that Jewish people have to be able to be united themselves and show the right example. And without doing that, it can lead to our destruction. Or another life. And, uh, you know, you did talk about, you That's feel like right. you've been here gotta, before. Then, and then we got to do come it back again, again and again and again and again. It's <laughs> almost like Groundhog Day, that we have to keep doing it and doing it until we get it right. And the irony is that you have to even admit yourself that you're a part of a very large family on your mom's side. And like I said, there's an attraction to having a, a nice large family. And it's nice to have a profession. It's nice to have money. It's nice to travel. It's nice to do all these things. But as you get older in life, and all of a sudden, Michael's 70, and the opportunity to really have a nice family life, you don't have to have your grandkids over every day. But it's nice to be able to see him once in a while and to see that your legacy and some of the wisdom you'd like to pass on to them, that they get a taste of that. And the way he's going to express his legacy is he wants to share 
these experiences of that he's had and his parents have had and what the Jewish people have gone through and to put it into podcasts, to put it into a book, is to tell everyone that he can meet and explain to them what the real truths are. And that's a very noble quest. And he's really old school, just like your father, when it comes to what's been passed down to me. I've had the privilege of being around people that have really loved me. I've lived around kindness and love. And the truth of the matter is, is the only thing I disagree with is that I love being smothered with it. <laughs> he thought that getting smothered with it was a little bit of a turnoff. You can smother me with all the love that you want. I can never get enough of it. I love it. <laughs> but what a very strong emotional Michael was in this podcast. And hopefully our guests can see that, the energy and the emotion and how candid he was about his whole life story. It's one of the best episodes we've done. Thanks for listening. Now I think I'm going to go call my dad. <laughs> I'll say goodbye and see you the next time. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy show. Join us weekly for new episodes and more daddy wisdom. Better Call Daddy is good advice always. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. You can also find special episodes on my YouTube channel. And you can listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Amazon Music, Alexa, or your preferred podcatcher. That's a wrap for now.